You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, most of y'all know me. I'm Tucker Fleming. I run the junior high ministry here at the Advent. And we're in the middle of a series that I guess Cameron's kind of dreamed up in terms of like, why are people the way that they are? Um, sort of like, what does the Bible say about it? Especially relative to your kids, our students, things like that. So my topic for today is disordered desires or... I was going to say why kids love to sin. Then my wife was like, you realize that's like an adult problem too, right? So, um, yeah, fair enough. So, um, we'll essentially just talk about sin today, and it'll be so much fun. Um, But before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll jump into it. Lord, thanks for bringing us here today. Thanks for your word. Um, It teaches us what sin is, and um, that also teaches us how you've paid for it. So, Lord, we ask you to, that you would be with us as we talk about that today and as we think about that today. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name, we pray. Amen. No, you're good. Um, okay, so before we like talk about why people love to sin, probably need to kind of clarify what sin is. Sin is not behavior, fundamentally. Like, it is that, right? If your son slaps your daughter, that's a sin, Right? And so in that sense, it is a behavioral issue, but at an even more fundamental level, like capital S sin is just like the state of being post Genesis 3. It's like the kind of mangling of your inner moral compass. I think you can see this a lot in your kids' lives. It's probably most apparent in that you don't have to teach your kids to do wrong, probably. Um, if you like, I didn't have to teach my ten-month-old son to bite me. He just like does it right. Um, you have to teach your kids to share and to be kind and compassionate and to not be so self-interested all the time, right? There's something in humans post Genesis three that just pushes us towards sinning, towards our own self-interest at the expense of others, things like that. And more than that, sin is like, it's not just a transactional thing either. It's not just like, oh, we've offended God, now God's got to punish us in this kind of legal or courtroom sense. It is that, but it's not just that. Right, if we're going to think about sin, especially in the lives of our kids and in our own lives, um, you know, we need to kind of acknowledge that there is something deeper on almost a nature level that's pushing us and moving us to sin. Right to do certain behaviors, um, you know, that are just like not productive for like general overall health. Right, um, and a healthy relationship with the Lord. So um, we're without some tech today. So I'm just going to read you guys part of Genesis three, and then I'll read you guys part of Romans five. So if you want to follow along on your uh, your phone Bible, your paper Bible, whatever. Um, then that's great. We're going to start in Genesis 3, and I'm just going to read you guys uh, the end of chapter 2, and then um, probably start verse 16 of chapter 3. So here's the last, second to last verse of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 24 of Genesis. This is really interesting to me. Wait, hold on a second. 
man, my verses are off. This is a pro tip. If you're going to like read the Bible before people, like make sure you got the verses on the money. Anyway, in chapter 2, we don't have it underlined in here, we see Moses observing that God has created trees and everything else that is a delight to the eye, right? And then um, God has given all these trees to Adam and Eve, and he's kind of said, hey, you can have food, fruit, whatever, from any of these trees, just not the one in the center of the garden, right? So God has kind of opened up the desires of Adam and Eve to anything in the garden save one tree, right? And yet in comes the serpent and says, did God really say, right? And we notice a few things that Eve does in the first little bit. So Here's the first few verses of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right, so from the jump right there, the serpent is asking a leading question of Eve that he knows is wrong, right? So first he's questioning God's word. He's saying, Did God actually say? Right, that's what he strikes at first. And then he says that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden, right? He's already trying to plant this idea in Eve's head that God is restrictive, that he doesn't want Adam and Eve to experience the bounty that's in front of them in the garden. And Eve responds, correctly in some ways, incorrectly in others, we may eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, or we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God says you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, if you back up a few lines, you'll see that Eve's added something, right? She said not only that God told them they couldn't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden, that one specific tree, but Eve also says God said we couldn't touch it. Now, already we're starting to see Eve kind of whiffing on the command that God has given them, right? Presumably, Adam and Eve would have to touch this tree if they're going to subdue the earth, care for the garden, keep it in good stead. They're going to have to prune the tree. They're going to have to water the tree. They're going to have to generally care for the tree. So already, she is missing on God's word, and it's all kind of heading towards a certain end. And the serpent just kind of helps her along the way. So verse 4 The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, who was supposed to be, like, having taught her the word, because she was existing before Eve, and yet, like, here we find Adam, just like, chilling right next to Eve while she's having this conversation with a serpent, never having jumped in and saying, that's not actually what God said, you know, etc., etc. And so she hands the fruit to him, and not surprisingly, he eats. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now I think what is interesting here is that we see Eve kind of thinking about this at like a heart level, right? So 
in verse 6 we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to, ta- to make one wise, we've already lost right there. Presumably Adam felt the same way and was just kind of like into the tree, right? The devil has told them, in the form of a serpent, that... God doesn't want you to have a good time, right? Like God is keeping something from you. He's jealous. He's scared that you'll become like him when you eat this fruit. So that's why he has said, don't eat of it. To say nothing of the fact that like God is the creator of the universe could have just like nixed the tree from the jump if he was like really that concerned about his own authority. But on the, like, on the front end of all this, the issue is not rational. It's not a behavioral issue. It's not just a transactional issue. The problem for Eve and for Adam is at the heart level. It's that they desire the fruit to be made wise. They want to be like God. They want to have their own authority, right? When we read um, that the serpent is telling them, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, that word for knowing doesn't just mean like, you'll have a better idea of like what good and evil is. It's like you will know evil to the point that you will be able to decide what's good and evil. You will be this moral arbiter for truth in your own life, right? It's not um, just a removal of ignorance. It's a like trying to supplant God from his proper place and authority in the universe. So this is where it all starts, right? And this isn't just the case for Adam and Eve, right? This trickles down through human history, right? And you know that because, like, we've got this much left of the Bible still after that happens. So I'm going to read Romans 5 a little bit where Paul kind of cashes in and makes this connection for us from Adam to us because the desire issue doesn't just stop with Adam and Eve, right? This is something that we inherit uh, by virtue of inheriting this sinful nature from Adam and Eve, right? There's, there's no blank slate for humanity after Genesis 3. You're not born good. You don't, like, come out morally indifferent, and then, like, from the time you're born to the time you die, you, like, wake up each day anew and make these moral decisions. That's not how it works. You walk with a kind of moral limp, at the very least, from day one. So... Here's Paul in Romans 5 making this point. Therefore, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So by death, we don't just mean like a physical death at the end of one's life. We mean a spiritual death, right? Humans begin their lives spiritually dead, in need of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, of new life, of a new creation through the Spirit, by Christ, etc. And then just a couple chapters later, we see Paul kind of outline what the Christian life is for us. Um, So in verses 13 through 20, we read, "...to that which is good..." That's the law, you know, either the Jewish law, the Torah, Leviticus 613, whatever, or um, the kind of moral conscience that even Gentiles have within themselves that Paul talks about. 
chapter 2, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might and yeah, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. This is Paul, like after he comes to faith in the Lord Jesus, right? Like after he becomes a Christian. Um, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law, that's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I don't do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So the point here for Paul, I think, is even for writers, you know, what, a third, half of the New Testament or so, um, the Christian life is still wrought with this battling of desires, right? He'll call it in other places. Um, he'll talk about this distinction between the old man and the new man, right? We have this old kind of sinful, fleshly nature. And then when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus, when he draws us to himself by the work of the Holy Spirit, that old man is renewed, right, to what it was supposed to be in the garden, right? We start this kind of journey where... Christ is drawing us more to Himself, making us look more like Himself, that will one day be completed in glory, right? But not until then. And that all is happening at like a sub-rational level. What I mean by that is, as Paul says here, sin for him goes much deeper than just, okay, I know it's right to not push my brother or sister or not um, talk back to my parents, and so I just won't do it. The issue is seated a lot deeper at the heart, at the desire kind of level, where um, even when you want to do good things, it is still hard. You're still fighting against this fleshly old man, whatever of Adam is left in you, to do the things that you know you're supposed to do, right? Uh, Gill, cracky would say that um, when you become a new man or a new woman, when the Lord Jesus kind of draws you to himself and renews your heart, you do become a new creation. Um, It's like you're on a boat, right, and you've pushed the old man off. But as Gil would say, that old man is an incredible swimmer, right? He's kind of always grabbing at the back of the boat, trying to get back on. This is the case for your kids. It's just... um, couched under a whole lot less, like, superego, you know? Um, So, this is the situation that we're dealing with sin-wise, is that it's not just at a transactional or, like, mental level. Um, Like, you know what's right, so do it. This is just probably not going to cash in um, for humans in general, but especially for children, just because the source of the issue isn't the very like short pathway from head to hands, right? The issue is from here to here to here, um, or here to here to here. So um, that's the issue 
that we're kind of dealing with. So that's kind of the landscape of like what sin is, why it's a much more pervasive force in my life and your life and in the life of your kids. Questions, comments, concerns before we kind of like take those principles, talk about like how this kind of manifests itself. Sure. There's a little boy in her class. He makes a hundred every single thing. And yeah. He has never gotten in trouble in about five years. And it's just like, and she's like, well, I'll never live up to him. And none of us ever will. I can talk. I mean, his mother's the sweetest person. I know she's not perfect. Sure. But like, it is hard to, sure, we were talking about this yesterday, like it's very hard for me to talk to her because I'm like, yes, I don't know. I just, I struggle. Because he is this perfect child. Yeah, so it sounds like the issue is one of like comparison. And is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about, gosh, this child's so perfect. He never did. And it almost like makes the kids want to be bad. Yeah, yeah, because you can't meet that, so you might as well just like wild out all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I, yeah. I can't relate to that. I was a biter, and so like my parents were just more concerned with me like not hurting other children than getting hundreds on on tests. So, um, but I yeah, but I think there's even a foundational issue there that's like why like there there's like almost uh, an impulse to live up to to why to live up to their maybe, but even like. Even outside of that, like this, the the impulse that for self righteousness or performance there is is just a more acceptable sinful impulse. Does that make sense? It's not biting, right? But it is kind of a hey, I like feel like I have to earn my own acceptance, right? It's a little more Pharisaical than Gentile, but it comes from the same place. Does that make sense? Um, cool. Any other questions, further comments, follow-ups, anything? Cool. Um, okay, so I think we have like maybe three points here, and then I'm going to try and like rifle through these so we can chat a little more unstructured. But I think the way that these chickens come home to roost in your students' lives are probably the same way as they come home to roost in your life. They're just not masked by decades of social convention that have kind of told you, like, hey, I, I shouldn't act this way in public, right? Um, or around other people. Uh, we're, we're a lot better at kind of hiding our sin on the inside, generally speaking, than showing it to the people around us. Does that make sense? Than your kids are. So... Um, I think the first way this kind of manifests itself is what we might call worldliness or a sense of comparison. I, th- I think that is a general experience of all people, especially kids, whether it's in the classroom or morally or on the sports field of whatever iteration. Um, there is a kind of emphasis for self-justification, even when it doesn't feel like that's what the issue is, Right. Um, when you have, yeah, a situation where like somebody in a class is doing so great and then other boys are acting out because they just feel like they can't meet that bar, 
that is an attempt at self-justification as well, right? I'm going to be so different so that my parents have to take notice of me or so that people have to take notice of me in some way. I can't get it by getting a hundreds or like moving my gold star to the end of the track every week or whatever it is. And so the way that I'll get attention is like, you know, by doing whatever things kids are doing, but they're not supposed to do in the classroom. So, um, yeah. Two, I think the way that these kind of like disordered desires manifest themselves in like a worldly sense is, yeah, uh, like your kids are catechized every day, right? By commercials they see on TV, by things they see on TikTok, by, uh, you know, the magazine covers they see in the grocery store, by the models in the, uh, the mannequins in the uh, store window, uh, by the people they see out on the street. They're told what matters to the world. Generally, it's going to be like success, fame, power, uh, being liked and accepted, right? And those aren't all bad things, right? Like it's, it's good to be liked. It's good to be accepted. But what the world tells you is to seek those things from strictly your career or your education or your bank account, etc. And obviously it doesn't cash in exactly like that for your kids, many of whom probably do not have bank accounts or careers. Um, but it does cash in in that it affects how we act in the classroom, it affects how we act at home, it affects how we act on the sports field, and at an even deeper level, it affects how we feel, right, on a spiritual level, not just an emotional level, um, on the sports field, in the classroom, at home, um, because it's so, those influences are just so pervasive, right? Does that make sense? Um, okay, two, I think children, like just by nature of the case, have a certain kind of spiritual short-sightedness, right? Like it's tough, I imagine, to tell your, I don't know, fourth, fifth, sixth graders, hey, don't hit people because like, Jesus talks about turning the other cheek and like all this stuff. Like this is just probably like you, you might have like a very spiritually precocious kid and like cheers and amen. We are all jealous, but most of you probably don't. And that's just probably not going to work on the front of it. Right. As it's just sort of one off. Hey, don't hit your sister because Jesus wouldn't want you to. While that's like a factually true statement, kids have been formed by the world to like do them right and to go get what they want and if that requires bending a rule slapping a rule here and there then that's what will be done does that make sense there it's children just don't think in an eternal perspective right it's why like ninth and tenth graders act the way they do. It's why like the most dangerous drivers you see on the road are kids who just got their driver's license, right? Because there's no like life experience to say, man, if I, if I drive this way, then like I, it's probably not going to be great for myself or for other people on the road. That same deal cashes in spiritually as well. Um, it's just hard developmentally for students to think as products of post-Genesis 3 world, 
sinful from birth, that, hey, like I shouldn't make this choice because it's spiritually imprudent for me, right? It will um, maybe place some distance between myself and the Lord Jesus, um, stuff like that. Okay, questions on the spiritual short side in this piece? Got a couple minutes left, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I do have my last section is like practical, kind of like what do we do? So I'm going to zoom through this last one and then we'll just have a group conversation about that. So I think the last issue that's probably is like by virtue of being young, your kids just haven't been formed and shaped by God's word and by his people so, so much yet, right? Like there's not years of compounding spiritual interest in their lives. So. Some of that's just a time and exposure element, putting the reps in, you know. Um, but I think to the Anderson's question, like, what? so what do we do as we're kind of raising kids? So I think first, it's important to, one, like, come to grips with yourself and know, like, I'm not going to parent a perfect child. I'm going to be a far from perfect parent. In fact, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, like, probably today, like before we left the house, we had failed to be a perfect parent. That's okay. That it just will happen, right? You, in some areas, have blown it already. You'll blow it again before the day's over. That's just like the nature of parenting in a fallen and sinful world. So you need to have some grace for yourself, first off. And you need to have some grace for your kids. They're just going to do stuff, right? Like they're going to do things like that they shouldn't do. They're going to do things that are bad and sinful, just like you do. Like the, it, it, and it won't change the older they get, right? They'll continue to do bad and sinful things for the rest of their lives until glory, right? Like until they see the Lord Jesus face to face, everybody will continue to sin, right? First John, right? if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us, right? So... You have to come to grips with that as well. So you need to have grace for yourself, grace for your kids. Um, and again, you, nobody's going to bat a thousand on either of those things, but maybe it's a helpful baseline. And I think third, it's important to do things that like form and shape your child into the image of Christ and like kind of informally catechize them as the world does, right? This doesn't mean like sitting down every evening and, you know, reading the New City Catechism together or something like that. But what it does mean is sort of as you walk by the way, as the psalmist would say, um, modeling for your kids what a Christian life looks like, what it looks like to be gracious to yourself and to others. Um, modeling. I think, like, so for example, growing up, one of the like most encouraging pictures to me and probably one that's formed me more than a lot of like explicit moments of like my parents or Sunday school teachers teaching me about Jesus is like walking down the stairs and seeing my mom reading a Bible in the morning, right? Before any of us woke up or after, you know, like when we were getting ready for bed or whenever, getting home from school and seeing my mother at the table with a Bible open. Like that to me is like an implicit way that my mother showed me, like, this is an important central tenet, kind of like keystone piece of life, right? So it would be things like that. I, you know, it's probably worth asking, what's on TV? What's in the ears of your kids? 
things like that, that is, and is it drawing their affections and their hearts closer to Jesus or further away? Does that make sense? So I think there's just a lot of implicit formation, shaping, catechesis, whatever word you would like to use that goes on. I think it's important to, like as you're able, kind of take advantage of that. And there, like, there is an explicit element to that. Like it is worth it to tell your toddler, hey, we don't hit or we don't, you know, stick our fingers in the electrical outlet or, you know, that's probably not like morally sinful, but like we don't do these things because and then take them to Scripture, right? Because even in that, even if they're not listening, what they're learning sort of by osmosis is this is where we get our vision for like what a full life is. Like this is where we get the source of, of everything in our lives, be it kind of what we should or should not do, our source of meaning and identity. It comes from God's Word. And so even if they're not listening, even if you feel like, man, I'm speaking into the wind right now, and this kid is like thinking about football practice he's got later tonight, what you're doing is like forming a habit within them that is telling them, this is where I go when things go bad, right? Or this is where I go when I'm in trouble, right? Or when your kid shares anxieties with you, it might be worth it to, you know, like you call an audible at the line of scrimmage for sure, but to take them to scripture, pray with them, ask them like meaningful searching questions about why they feel a certain way. Um, Why are they so upset they got left out of, you know, Johnny's birthday party at the skating rink or like, I don't even do, is a skating rink exist anymore? Um, Nice. It's vintage now, probably. Um, But yeah, I think it's just worth it to kind of like try to at least implicitly maybe direct interactions toward Christ, toward his word, toward his people. Does that make sense? I know that's probably not a like five steps to, you know, make your kids great spiritually. God, but I think like a lot of this is just like such a, like you got to lean hard on the Holy Spirit. Look, I have a 10 month old, so we're like barely into this. And I feel like that is like the number one lesson of parenthood is like, bro, you cannot do this on your own. Like you, yeah, that's your only option is to just kind of look to Christ, look to his spirit and say like, I don't know what to do here. I've got to make a wisdom decision. Do your best and trust the Lord after that. Um, is probably Christian parenting in a nutshell. Yeah, Emily. So how do you balance... So when my kids um, require discipline, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're slick and they'll you know say, like, Jesus died for my sins. I don't have to yeah. Sure. Sometimes my answer is yes, but God placed me in authority over you. Sure. Job to like train you up and and help you learn how to be a good and faithful man. And sometimes it's that okay, well, God didn't promise that we don't experience the natural consequences of our sins, and here's your natural consequence, my friend. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But how? Like, I, I always struggle with. Am I just raining down law, or am I, you know, offering so much grace that they're going to be you know, sure? Problems? I mean, yeah, it's hard. 
It is, yeah, I can only imagine, yeah. Um, so the Old Testament is like replete with examples of God making distinctions between uh, discipline and punishment, right? Um, and frequently uh, we read, especially in the Psalms and the Proverbs, God disciplines those whom he loves, right? So like you start asking questions if, if God stops disciplining you for indwelling sin in your life. And the, the difference, I think, is the goal there. It's to make the boys into good and faithful future men. Punishment is just retributive, right? Discipline is restorative. And it is to, yeah, teach you. Like, I, discipline in the Bible is a blessing because it's God coming to his people and drawing them back to him, right? And God is with his people if and when he is disciplining them, just like you're with your boy, like, right? Like, my mom used to always say to me, and I thought it was garbage until I had my own kid, like, this is going to hurt me way worse than it hurts you, right? Um, but in a sense, that is like you being with your boys in their suffering and saying, this, like, the goal of this is to make you better. Does that make sense? Um, well, yeah. Yeah. Always said discipline, right. Mm-hmm. But that even if I don't see the fruit of of that, you know, when they're you know slamming or mad, right, be in your room or whatever. Um, yeah, that that hopefully that's leaving an imprint in their heart. Yeah, yeah. You definitely got to get comfortable with playing the long game here. You know, this is very like three yards in a cloud of dust kind of <laughs> situation. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, quit asking that question. The question you should start asking is, what are you going to do about it now? Yeah. And, um, and I caught myself doing it this week. Frank cut his bangs, and I was like, why did you do that? You know. And he and he looked at me and he goes, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, there it was. Like exactly. Um, you know, he he literally cut his bangs for, for no reason. And and I said, why did you do that? Save some money. Yeah. Get the Fiskers out, man. <laughs> That's said, right. But I caught myself and I said, what are you going to do about it now? And he was like, wait till it grows. I was like, all right, there you go. But um. Anyway, I thought that was like really yeah. advice that, that translates well to sin yeah. and consequences and, and repentance. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. definitely shows you that sin goes a lot deeper than just a sort of rational or like the, I, I thought the reason that I should do this is... Yeah, and I think I there's I a... Yeah, yeah. And yeah. there... Yeah, there's a super helpful way to ask that question too that's like gives your kids some agency and kind of tells them, like, hey, you can, you know, like, you're good. It's all right, you know. So about that time, I guess, I'll be here for another couple minutes if you want to keep chatting, but uh, y'all feel free to leave if you're going to go grab your little ones. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.